Hey there, and welcome to the Box Office Watch podcast, where we keep watch on how much money movies are making and why. This is the show recapping the weekend of September 24th through the 26th, 2021. My name is Paulo, and I'm your host. Hope everyone is doing well out there. I still haven't been watching that many movies lately, though yesterday my wife got me tickets to watch Jokoi's comedy tour here in New York City, and it was a riot. I never thought sleep apnea could have me doubled over dying of laughter. Uh, anyway, we are past the vernal equinox too, so days are going to be getting shorter and more award films are going to be coming out. Uh, we'll go over what's slated for the upcoming month, uh, but in the meantime, let's take a look at the domestic box office numbers for this week. In first place, to no surprise, is Disney's Shang-Chi and Legends of the Ten Rings coming in with $13 million in 3,952 theaters, a 40% drop versus last week, and a 3,297 per theater average for its fourth weekend. Cumulative total to date domestically is $196.2 million, just shy of being the first $200 million domestic film uh, post-pandemics, which should happen sometime in the next couple of days. Sanxi has completely dominated this September for good reason, uh, and this week it got a couple more records under its belt, or I guess on its rings. Uh, first off, at $196.2 million, uh, it's now the number one highest grossing domestic film of the pandemic ahead of Black Widow's $183 million after 12 weeks. Uh, secondly, as of Sunday, Sanxi has hit 23 days of being the highest grossing film for that particular uh for, for that particular interval, so it's the, num- the number one film 23 days in a row. Now, while I don't know which film all-time has the longest streak, uh, within the MCU, th- this actually broke the record for the franchise. Uh, previously, it was held by the Avengers Infinity War film, which went for 21 days before being broken by Deadpool 2, um, the, first, uh, uh, sorry, this event, uh, the first Avengers film, which also went 21 days before having its streak broken by Men in Black 3, and Black Panther, which went for 21 days before being broken by the opening day for A Wrinkle of Time. Uh, with the rest of this week, the new record to beat for the MCU should be about 26 or 27 days, depending on how you count previews on Thursdays. Now, while Black, Widow, pa- Black Panther did have its daily streak broken by a wrinkle in time a, a couple years back, uh, it did rally that weekend and ended up taking the weekend, going on to have five weekends in a row at the top of the charts. Next week's uh, release of Venom 2 makes it unlikely that uh, Sanxi will will match that record, Uh, but still, Sanxi has joined the four weekends in a row at the top of the box office club, Um, the first and likely only film of 2021 that will do so. Like we said last week, the last film to do so was Tenet last year, which, you know, hardly counts just because of the lack of competition, and then Black Panther before that in 2018. Uh, domestically, it looks like the ceiling is probably $250 million for Sanchi, um, though a stacked October coming up, it might be closer to 225 or so, uh, 225 million or so. Uh, internationally, Sanchi now sits $167 million for a global total of $363.2 million in 44 markets. Uh, we did not get a Chinese release this past weekend, unfortunately, so it looks unlikely it will ever do so at this point. Uh, likely, it's going to cap out at $400 to maybe $450 million as a result, uh, good enough to get the fifth place of the year so far ahead of, and it's about $15 million away from getting ahead of Black Widow to that spot. 
Now, in hindsight, it does seem kind of silly that it was ever in question, but there were actually thoughts last week that Shang-Chi might not hold on to its September throne uh, due to the release of Dear Evan Hansen by Universal. After all, the original Broadway play won six Tony Awards, including Best Musical and Best Actor for Ben Platt, who reprises his titular role of the film uh, with the hopes that the film you know, would help him complete the O for his EGOT. Um, and as someone who lives in New York, you know, the popularity of bro- the Broadway play definitely eclipsed that of, say, In the Heights in terms of mainstream appeal. However, it seems that it was not meant to be, and, they, and Evan Hansen is going to be left waving through the window. Uh, the film adaptation opened to an anemic $7.4 million in 3,364 theaters per theater average of $2,213. For context, that is less than the $11.5 million that in the Heights open too, and that one at least had the excuse of being a day and date release on HBO Max, as well as a mostly unknown cast. Uh, Dear Evan Hansen, in addition to Ben Platt, um, you know, is a theatrical release and has also Amy Adams and Julianne Moore in the cast. It also just barely cleared the opening of 2019's Eldritch Horror Abomination, uh, that is the Cats adaptation, that opened to only $6.6 million in normal pandemic times. So, what went wrong here? Well, a lot has been said about the decision to cast Ben Platt as the titular role, given the mismatch of his portrayal of a high school student with, you know, looking a very rough 26 years old at time of filming. Uh, responses range, you know, to be defensive of him, right? Like, he originated the role and did receive an award for it, so, you know, he would know the character the best. Plus, you know, he's not, like, the only 20-something-year-old to play a teenager. Um, it, it also is the more critical takes, right? You know, what might work for Broadway play adaptation does not necessarily translate to the silver screen adaptation. And then, of course, it's the very cynical takes, right? Like, his father, Mark Platt, was producer on both the Broadway play and the movie, and, you know, Ben Platt said the movie wouldn't have been made without him, so, you know, there's likely some sort of nepotism at here, uh, trumping actual talent. Whatever the case, and whatever your your take may be, the negative press couldn't really have helped here. Um, And, you know, uh, you know, it's it's also not helpful that again you know the storylines that work for a two hour musical stage adaptation well it has some suspension of disbelief and the heightened you know emotional state of of you know kind of the, these larger than life Broadway plays those don't always translate well to to film uh, a story about teen suicide and mental health with some allegedly I haven't seen the film the, the play myself uh, some allegedly questionable characterizations of its main character you know who you're supposed to root for who seems kind of scummy into some degrees um, you know at least from from descriptions I have heard of the plot, you know, it, it can't really be an easy watch for the general audience, or even for fans to see it over and over again. I don't think it's going to be a thing, um, you know, especially at a beefy two hours and fifteen minutes long. Sir, you know, enough fans came out for of, of the fans of the Broadway play came out Thursday night to give it a cinema score of a minus. Uh, but after opening the Toronto Film Festival to negative reviews from critics, uh, the response on Rotten Tomatoes is now thirty three percent, probably going to deter people from actually going to go see it. Now, probably the saving grace of this film is that while it will be a loss, it's going to be a low loss thanks to the budget. Um, The budget was a relatively small $27 million. Assuming this film has a similar multiplier to that of In the Heights, about 2.6x, it'll probably barely get to $20 million. Uh, No international numbers have come in yet, though it's unlikely it'll break out there being, again, a very U.S.-specific play. Um... 
in the Heights had a budget of about $55 million and domestically made just under $30 million, plus another $14 million abroad for uh, $44 million, so about $11 million short. Um, and then Cats had a $100 million budget, uh, but only made $27 million domestic and $75 globally. Um, so, you know, that's like a, what, $25 million loss at that point. Uh, so, you know, a $7 million loss in comparison, not counting advertising, is probably a bit more easier to stomach than $25 million for Cats. Um, at this rate, though, Dear Evan Hansen, under, uni under Universal's distribution deals will likely come out on VOD in about 17 days or so. Um, so maybe it'll make some money back there. Who knows? Uh, in third place, Free Guy continues its stellar run with a 19% drop uh, to $4.1 million in Weekend 7 in 3,175 theaters per theater average of $1,295. Domestic total sits at $114 million. Internationally, it sits at $203 million for a worldwide total of $317 million, past the $300 million mark. Um, it's the fifth film this year to do so, and again, off of a budget of only about $100 million. Uh, in fourth place, Candyman made $2.5 million this weekend, dropping 27% in its fifth weekend. Not bad for a horror film. Uh, this is in 2,556 theaters, per theater average of $1,001, and a running total of $56.9 million to date. Uh, now, notably, that $56.9 million is the second highest grossing R-rated film post-pandemic uh, domestically, with the new Suicide Squad film coming in at $55 million. Uh, in first place is the newest Conjuring film, sitting at $65.5 million so far. Not sure if, if Candyman will be able to leg it out to that point, but it would be a pleasant surprise if it does so, not to mention a feather in the cap of Jordan Peele and Mia DaCosta. Wrapping up the top five for the weekend is the second weekend of Clint Eastwood's doomed Western uh, crime macho, making only $2 million in 4,022 theaters, per theater average of just about $500 and a 54% drop week over week. Cumulative domestic to date is $8.2 million, still has not cleared a million dollars abroad, so it's now at $9 million worldwide, off of a $33 million budget. Um, I don't even think uh, HBO Max is going to be able to save this one. Now, outside the top five, there's not much worth noting. Um, we do have Malignant, James Wan's newest weird horror on HBO Max, dropping about 960 theaters or so in its third weekend after seriously underperforming. Uh, in 10th place, there was an uh, Indian Telugu film called Love Story that made about $790,000 in 300 theaters, per theater average of 2.6,000, the second highest of the weekend for films in at least 100 theaters, above Dear Evan Hansen. Uh, the Eyes of Tammy Faye did have a decent hold this, this second weekend, but that's because it, it rolled out wider from 450 to uh, 1352 theaters. Um, you know, the per theater average dropped as a huge result. Um, uh, and, you know, again, it's mostly the volume of theaters where it was able to make up the difference. Uh, in super limited releases, so less than 100 theaters, uh, Bleak with Streak released the German entry for the Oscars this year, I'm Your Man, in 16 theaters to $32,900 per theater average of 2057 Over at the IFC Center here in New York, Univer uh, distributor Utopia uh, released a dark comedy called La Pla El Planeta for a total of $7,181, which, since it's just the one theater, is its per theater average. Uh, I believe that's actually the highest per theater average of the week, technically. Um, there's also a decent article from The Wrap about why indie films are going for you know these couple of, of limited releases are wide. Most indie films are going for wide releases, you know, like Blue Bayou, Coward Counter, and so on, Eyes of Tammy Faye. 
um, you know, there are a couple of reasons. You know, one is that you know uh, because art house theaters have been disproportionately affected by the pandemic, they don't have a lot of the same theaters they would have gone to in the past. So they need to you know cater to these larger theater chains. Um, and then secondly, right, older audience who's, who tend to be the uh, target demographic for these indie films are a bit hesitant to go out still. So you know. In order to make up the revenue, they're going to just have to bite the bullet and, and have it released wider, um, you know, as opposed to the, the art, art house studios for older audiences. Uh, anyway, total box office for this week is down to sub $48 million at $37 million, the lowest since the weekend of May 20th this year when there was only about $20 million or so in the box office. Perhaps to be expected with no real major releases. No, I'm not counting Dear Evan Hansen as such. Um, now, on the other hand, October does look to be a pretty much like a bloodbath uh, for large films as well as some award hopefuls. So, you know, since we don't really have much to talk about this week, let's take a quick inventory of what films are coming up in October. So October 1st, we have the big opener of Venom, Let There Be Carnage from Sony. Pre-sales pretty good, about three-fourths out of Sanxi. So, you know, about a 55 to $60 million opening this coming weekend. Uh, we also have The Addams Family 2 from United Artists. Uh, Box Office Pros has it opening in the 12 to $22 million rates. Again, that one is day and date on VOD as well as in theaters, uh, mostly due to having to deal with, you know, kids not, potentially not going back to theaters. Uh, also, day and date uh, on October 1st is the new Sopranos film, The Many Saints of New York, which has a Warner release, comes on the HBO Max. Uh, that's forecast by Box Office Pro to make th- $7 to $16 million domestically. Uh, you know, that's about in line, theatrically, that's about in line with what we'd expect to see from, you know, this more limited film. Uh, there was also a documentary from Lionsgate called The Jesus Music about Christian music, which has no forecast yet. Second weekend of October, October 8th, here in the States at least, we have the latest Bond film, No Time to Die. We'll talk about its hype in the UK in a little bit, but here in the States, pre-sales about three-fourths that of F9. So, you know, similarly uh, so to to uh, Venom, that will be Carnage, so it be about 55 to maybe $65 million opening. Not bad for a film that's basically two years delayed at this point. So it makes for a pretty tight race with Venom for who will be the winner of the month of October. Uh, the following weekend, October 15th, we have two smaller films coming out. First, we have Universal's Halloween Kills, forecast to open to $35 to $55 million from Box Office Pro. Seems a little bit high for me. Um, now, this one is day and date release on Peacock, um, but I don't see that having too much of an impact. Uh, we also have 20th Century Fox uh, having one of Ridley Scott's awards films from later this year, uh, The Last Duel starring Adam Driver and Matt Damon. As a smaller film, the outlook for this one is in the 5 to $15 million range, similar to what you know, similar art house film uh, Green Knight opened up to. Uh, moving then to October 22nd, The Spice Must Flow with Dune releasing from Warner Brothers. As we've noted, this one is day and date release on HBO Max uh, in the hopes that the strong reception there will boost the chances for a sequel. Again, we'll talk about the international numbers in a little bit, but you know, it's, long story short, so we're not quite sure how well Dune will do in the States. Uh, we don't have yet have pre-sale numbers, and we also don't know how well the sci-fi, uh, which is generally beloved in Europe and East Asia, um, how well that will translate to the American audience. Uh, competing against Dune on the 22nd is 20th Century Fox's animation's Ron's Gone Wrong um, as counting programming. Um, also worth noting is that the French Dispatch, Wes Anderson's newest film, comes out for Searchlight Pictures, but that's on a limited release, you know, LA and New York. Um, we'll see whenever that ends up going wide. Uh, no word when it might be. 
And then for the final weekend of October, the weekend of the 29th, we have a number of smaller films. None of them have forecasts yet. Um, Antlers is a much-delayed horror film from Searchlight Pictures. Last Night in Soho is Focus Feature's newest film from Edgar Wright. Uh, a Mouthful of Air is a drama from Sony starring Amanda Seyfried. And then the latest My Hero Academia movie, World Heroes Mission, is going to be distributed by Funimation Films that weekend as well. Now, beyond that, getting into November, we start talking about holiday season, where holds are a little bit longer and a little bit better. Um, notably, a few weeks back, we reported that Paramount was after release scheduled for the rest of the year, but it looks like they've come back, uh, resetting Clifford the Big Red Dog live action. Oh my god, I can't believe that's happening. Uh, back into this year's calendar for, I believe, November 10th. Uh, notably, that is day and date release with Paramount Plus, as well as in theaters. Now, moving on to international numbers, as promised. First, we have the, some date adjustments uh, relative to the U.S. release dates. Uh, most notably, No Time to Die does open this coming weekend in most countries abroad, with the exception of North America, France, China, and Australia. In fact, the world premiere is set to be the Tuesday this episode comes out uh, over in London. Uh, there's much anticipated demand for the film that in the U.K., Bond's home country, uh, you know, movie chains have had to hire additional staff to help with opening weekend. It's set to open 700 theaters in the UK and Ireland, the largest release post-pandemic for the year, ahead of about 650, there were about 650 theaters for Black Widow. Notably, it does have a longer runtime at 2 hours and 40 minutes, though it does not seem to be a deterrent, um, you know, as pre-sales in the UK are at the highest ever since Endgame, that one opened to about $56.1 million over there. Now, likely it won't be as many walk-ups uh, due to pandemic life, but still, uh, across the world in, you know, all the all the markets, um, that's going to be about $100 million we're looking for for this weekend. Um, those same markets had Spectre, the last uh, Bond film, open to about $140 million in 2015 in the markets. Now, also Bond-related, it seems as though Amazon has promised Bond's producer Barbara Broccoli that the films will continue to be theatrical-exclusive despite the acquisition of MGM coming up. Now, with Bond opening this weekend, obviously, well, Venom wouldn't want to compete with that all of the time, so they will have the most of their release coming October 15th internationally while coming out October 1st here in the States. Um, though notably, Russia, I believe, also gets Venom this coming weekend. Now, meanwhile, Dune has already rolled out much of Europe, including Russia. 32 markets so far total, including East Asia, you know, Singapore, Hong Kong. Um, it's dropped only 32% versus last weekend in all those regions, which you know is pretty solid. Currently sits at $76.5 million to date, suggesting that word of mouth is pretty good, and this, you know, this isn't front-loaded by the cult fans of the books. Currently, it's pacing 12% ahead of Tenet, 49% of Black Widow, 64% ahead of Shang-Chi, and 73% ahead of Blade Runner 2049. And in certain regions, it's already pacing ahead of F9. Um, joining the party this week is the Middle East with the UAE and Saudi Arabia. In Europe, regions like France, Russia, Germany, Italy, and Spain all held number ones the second weekend. Um, the fly spice must flow indeed. The next new regions to get Dune are Japan on the 15th, and the UK and Korea on the 20th, which China and the U.S. getting a release on the 22nd, as we noted. Again, no guarantee that the success in Europe translate to you know a strong reception here in the States, um, but I'm going more and more optimistic as the weeks go on. I will see a second Dune film you know within the next couple of years. Can't really say for sure when pre-sales go on sale here, but I can't wait for them to do so because I really want to book my IMAX ticket to see this one. Uh, also worth noting, the Directors Guild has made day-and-date films eligible for their awards this year, so Dennis Villanueva should be good to go for the DJ Award. 
Now, moving to China briefly, it's a bit of a down week this week, uh, only $24 million total from the Chinese box office. Um, according to Variety, the weekend October 1st is an unofficial blackout period for Western films in China, uh, with some state-approved propaganda films coming out. Um, you know, uh, And anything releasing this weekend would have had their legs cut off, so they didn't. Um, again, no Shang-Chi film release, and it's unlikely going to get one at this point. Dune will be the next major release as the unofficial blackout window closes October 22nd, before No Time to Die follows up October 29th. Now, first place for the box office in China this weekend was local disaster film Cloudy Mountain, making $10.6 million in its second weekend, running total $58.2 million. Second place goes to All About My Mother, making $4.2 million this weekend, running total of $18.4 second weekend. Third place goes to Free Guy, closing out its run at uh, $2.5 million for the weekend, um, making a, a, a running final total of $94.2 million. Couldn't quite get to the $100 million mark, but still solid performance nonetheless. Uh, Raging Fury comes in fourth, closing, uh, continuing its run uh, with $202 million and another two point four this weekend. Um, and then closing out the top five is To Be With You, making $1.2 million in its second weekend, running total of $8.8 million. Next week, the ones to keep an eye for are, again, those Chinese-approved films, you know, government-approved films, uh, Battle at Changjin Lake, as well as My Country, My Parents. Now, there are a couple of other big headlines to go over that really could affect the movie industry for the next couple of months. Um, before we, let's, let's go over those before we close out the show. First up, IATSE, or the International Alliance of Theater States Employees, the labor union representing over 150,000 technicians, artists, and craftspeople, you know, they're gearing up for a potential strike authorization vote um, over broken down negotiations with the AMPTP, or the Alliance of Movie Motion Picture and Television Producers. So not just the studios, but you know, also you know, streaming services like Netflix and Amazon. Now, Netflix and Amazon are kind of the main, uh, from what I've seen online, the main uh, sticking points in the negotiations. Negotiations uh, where you know ITSE has been demanding higher minimum wages, but more importantly, higher minimum time between the end and sort of day, uh, stronger enforcement of, um, of of breaks for lunch and whatnot, um, as well as the end of the classification of these biggest studios as new media. Now, new media, you know, at the time the logic is that you know these are a new media. We don't know if they're going to be a, a big player in the Hollywood space, so you know we're not going to make them pay a higher rate for the union. Um, now they have you know. Have have union employees play uh, working now. Obviously, Netflix, Amazon at this point are major players in the you know in the Hollywood space, but you know they're still getting away with the lower minimums and the lower strict requirements regarding breaks and such. Um, and so you know the IATSC, rightly so, you know wants to make sure they have safe working conditions, especially if these films are you know pretty much a as big as any major studio out there at this point. Now, so, you know, the, uh, the the strike authorization vote is set to be held this weekend, October 1st to the 4th. Announcement uh, results will be announced, I believe, on, on the 4th, uh, which should be um, this coming uh, Monday. Um, so we'll definitely have the news this time next week. Um, if the strike is authorized, it doesn't mean they're striking yet. But if negotiations end up falling through for again, you know, in the next round of negotiations, um, they, the the president will then be able to call for a strike, which kind of makes it you know a leveraging tool against the studios in this case. Um, if it were to be authorized and take effect, sixty thousand workers would cease work across the country. You know, again, most of that L.A. and 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 New York, and L.A. But you know, obviously the the, the unions there are, are the local unions are actually national unions, um, and you know this would have implications for you know not just for Netflix and and um, 
Netflix and and Amazon Films, but these are in fact all productions under AMPTP, AMPTP, uh, you know, jurisdiction. Um, you know, all the major studios as well. Now there are a couple others, you know, a couple like you know music videos and such that they would that have specific deals set up separate from this. Um, but yeah, you know, this would be the largest labor union strike within the entertainment space, largest since the 2007 Writers Guild strike. Um, and we saw how much that messed up the in, the the quality of products that we saw around that time period. And, you know, unlike the Writers Guild strike where studios feasibly could get around it by, you know, using self-scripts that, you know, they, they didn't really want to produce, but now they didn't have anything else so they could go with it. You can't really make a film without the IATSC or their members working on set. Um, so, yeah, that would grind this to a halt. And, you know, with, you know, the, with the box office gearing up, it's going to be, you know, studios are going to have to really act fast and, 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 and resolve this conflict in order to make sure that, you know, you, that, that they don't have an empty pipeline uh, coming up. They won't have to delay things further. And again, this you know, while that might, while that's a bit of a stretch on how it affects box office, you know, again, this ties into why I think following the box office industry in general is important. If you'll allow me this tangent, right? Like you know, and 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 then specifically why the box office numbers with release of the streaming is so important. So you know, we have people saying you know we want day and date streaming, we want to you know have our films come out. Uh, on streaming the same day they come out in theaters. Now, as we've kind of established on the show, you know, in general, while you know maybe for the for for studios they can get larger profits, you know, they have a larger rev share of the amount of revenue coming in. You know, for for you know the total amount of revenue coming in, though, you know, after the, all the rev share and stuff, that's actually going to go down because you know when you have a theatrical exclusive release, you can then double dip from theatrical exclusive release into the uh, streaming into the you know streaming. F- uh, VOD release uh, and then selling off those other rights to other streaming services. Um, in the case where you have a day and date release, just the total amount of revenue in the ecosystem that each film will make go down. And you know, as a result, there's just gonna be less f- cast injected into studios. Now, you know, obviously the biggest benefits of this are you know s- streaming first companies like Netflix and Amazon, and you know they're making lots of projects, lots of stuff out there. And you know they're benefiting from the fact that these you know workers have you know by the designation the new media designation are pay are having to they're having to pay them less and to, to some degree be less strict with the you know working conditions. Um, you know if if we were to have a case where you know everything moves to streaming only there's no or streaming first you know there's no big blockbusters that you know come out in theaters exclusively you know the amount of money in the ecosystem is going to go down and if it goes down then you know the the studio the studios are going to be much more incentivized to try to basically you know get away with getting more bang for their buck by making working their employee the the laborers you know a lot harder and and not letting them have as many breaks and so on and so you know this is why i think some people who are like, oh, we want to have streaming. While yes, it is consumer, more consumer friendly to do so to get it there. It does impact the overall ecosystem and how it trickles down to you know the employees and what they're forced to do of people working on set. So you know, that's just one I think externality of this kind of whole conversation about streaming first and so on. So you know, again, just a little a little tangent I guess on on uh, what and what what the implications of the streaming wars might end up being. Um, now, 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 back to the news. You know, other guilds from Hollywood, the DGA, which we already mentioned, Directors Guild, SAG after the Screen Actors Guild, and then the WGA, the Writers Guild, all have shown their support for IETSC in this situation. Uh, also tendentially related, Apple apparently told IETSC that they have less than 20 million total subscribers, um, and you know that supposedly qualifies them to pay the lower rates for the new media. Um, 
this is finding significance since Apple actually normally doesn't release much about their paying subscriptions, but the fact that this information leaked because, you know, it's negotiations they need to try to get their prices down means how big a deal this is. And also kind of tells me that Apple TV definitely has not been the success that they hoped it was. Though, uh, you know, in, in tangential to then tangential to that, um, you know, uh, the, um, what's it, uh, the New York Film Festival opened this past weekend, and you know the opening film was uh, the tragedy of, of Macbeth, uh, starring I believe um, Denzel Washington and Francis McDormand, directed by Joel Cohen. That one's actually picked up by Apple, uh, who you know is um, his is is is. You know, it's, it's an early contender for potential Oscar buzz. So, you know, if, if Apple is, has smaller, you know, it, it's that's their way of trying to, you know, raise the profiles to have like the higher quality, you know, Oscar worthy films within their catalog. Anyway, uh, in other Hollywood shakeups, uh, CAA, the largest talent agency in Hollywood, is acquiring ICM Partners, another me- uh, media-, media talent agency. Uh, presumably, in a world where more studios are likely going to be acquired as you know the ecosystem shrinks, agencies need to similarly consolidate to have the leverage to negotiate with their clients moving forward. As again, streaming becomes a larger part of the studio's bottom line and how stu- uh, how the value that um, actors bring to the to the studios. Now, no word yet on where you know on on how this is going to uh, uh, shake up, but, you know, this will be definitely something to keep an eye on. Uh, speaking of studios prioritizing streaming, uh, more updates from the Paramount situation. As expected, the former 20th century president, uh, Emma Watts, uh, who was, you know, head of the movie group at Paramount, uh, she's going to be leaving Paramount having uh, following G- Jim Giannopoulos. Uh, she followed him to the studio, having come from uh, 20th century. You know, this was 14 months ago she joined Paramount, too. You know, now leaving it. Uh, she apparently had been set up to succeed there, but without with him, with uh, Byron Roberts taking the place, you know, there's really not much for it else more for her at the studio. Uh, Dario Sersek and Mike Ireland will be taking her place as co-heads of the studio after being co-presidents of the film division since January this year. No word on yet where Emma Watch will be ending up. Now on the story side of things, you know, Netflix apparently got the rights to know Roald Dahl's works from the family, uh, from the author's family. So you can expect to see a bunch more Roald Dahl films coming out uh, on Netflix in the future. Um, you know, Eddie Murphy has signed a three-year first look deal with Amazon Studios. Uh, hopefully that's more Dolomite is my name than, than whatever else he's been working on. And then somehow we got a date for the third and hopefully final Fantastic Beats film from April 2022. Uh, I still maintain that the sequel to the first one should have been called Quidditch Through the Ages. And perhaps the top two stories this week, you know, at least in the world of memes. Uh, first off, in the most recent Nintendo Direct, so you know, video game news, uh, we got news of the uh, casting for the upcoming Illumination Mario film and also the date, the, the Christmas 2022. The real again, the the cast here is kind of ridiculous. Uh, Chris Pratt as Mario, Charlie Day as Luigi, Anna Taylor Joy as Pete, Jack Black as Bowser, Seth Rogen as Donkey Kong, and Keegan Michael Key as Toad. The internet, of course, has been had a field day with all this you know craziness going on. But you know, for for this for this podcast, you know, we'll we'll keep an eye on how this ends up doing next year. Um, for better or worse, Mario does have the brand appeal of Mario. Uh, you know, oh, oh, sorry, it does have the be, be brand appeal that surpasses even that of Pokemon. And, you know, the meme potential here with kind of like this crazy situation we're seeing um, could help with all of the, you know, the Sonic the Hedgehog film, which had a bit of the meme factor going in. 
Uh, the other meme news of this week is that AMC is planning that you know the darling of Wall Street bets apes. Um, they are apparently planning to try to accept Dogecoin to pay for tickets. Now this is largely just based off of a poll of CEO Adam Aaron seeing you know that there's been a ton of responses to this poll asking if Dogecoin should be accepted in theaters. But it seems that he wants to make it work and. Yeah, I don't know, man. Like, you know, you probably saw it coming, but, you know, at this point, just the density of memes in this whole AMC situation is just approaching neutron star levels at this point. So I don't think we can top that. Let's go ahead and wrap the episode here. Uh, you can shoot me ideas for what else is to cover via email at boxofficewatchpodcast at zoom.com or on Twitter at BOWatchPodcast. You can find the link in our show notes, iTunes, and Google Play. Um, make sure you subscribe and leave a review, or at the very least, tell a friend. Any of that helps. Feeling extra generous, consider supporting us on Patreon. Makes not only this show, but all the other podcasts I work on possible. Links to all that in our show notes. Numbers used in the show come from thenumbers.com. Intro and outro, outro music, Kevin MacLeod at incompetech.filmmusic.io. Editing production by Ninja Boy Media. Until next time, this has been the Box Office Watch. And remember, our watch goes on. <laughs>